From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 157 with guest Robert Hamilton, recorded Friday, April 9th, 2010. Run As Radio is produced each week by Plop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. With me, as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Hey, Richard. How are you today? I am well, sir, and uh, odds are I'm in the midst of the .NET Rocks road trip when this show gets published, so I will be somewhere in the United States in an RV. Well, that's a relatively small geographical area, so I'm sure we can find you. Oh, yeah. Well, if you, for anybody who's a .NET Rocks fan or have no idea what we're talking about, over on the .NET Rocks site under the uh, link road trip... Uh, Carl and I are driving across the country doing 15 cities in three weeks, cool. talking about the studio launch and all of that madness. So what, what what's the route? Where do you start and where do you finish and what are some of the highlights there? We're uh, yeah, we're doing 15 cities, so we're doing West Coast, then Midwest, then East Coast. And on the weekends, we move the RV between the regions. So I think at one point, uh, we drive from Phoenix to Houston, which is, I've done it before, the other way. It's a really long way. There's a whole lot of nothing in western Texas. Yeah, I-40, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it just goes and goes and goes. But, you know, we get to meet a lot of folks. It's a, it's a gas, uh, you know, fun things to do. You know what I didn't ask you before? Are you driving through Portland? We are not going to Portland, my friend, again. So, oh uh, well, I have promised to do the Portland Code Camp next time around. Well, Carl and I'll come up for that. And it's just the uh, distances get too far when you get up into the northwest corner. We also miss Denver, which is another great place that uh, I wish we could get up to. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Have a great time. Ah, oh, it'll be. It'll. Uh, I'm sure there'll be stories when we get that back out the other side, and I'll be happy to be home for a while. All right, Greg, let's introduce our guest. Robert Hamilton is a senior product marketing manager for data loss prevention at Symantec. Robert works with security and privacy executives at leading Fortune 500 companies across all industries to help them protect their confidential data. Symantec is the acknowledged market leader in data loss prevention with the only unified solution to discover, monitor, and protect confidential data wherever it is stored or used. Prior to Symantec, Hamilton served as a senior product manager for RSA Security. Hamilton has held a variety of product management, product marketing, and corporate marketing roles at Postini, Mirapoint, NetApp, and Hewlett Packard. Welcome, Robert. Hey, Robert. Morning, Richard. Good morning, Greg. So, data loss prevention. Boy, that's a broad topic. It sure is. Something I've certainly learned a lot about in the last year. So are we mainly talking about protecting credit card numbers here? Is that what this is all about? Let me just tell you, um, to start off with, a lot of people throw around the term data loss prevention, and sometimes they're talking about encryption, sometimes they're talking about uh, port control, but when we talk about data loss prevention, what we're talking about is an, a specific application that's called data loss prevention, and it, it certainly is about protecting credit card data. That is certainly one of the major reasons people uh, buy data loss prevention. But increasingly, it's about protecting uh, people's customers' private information, protecting health information, protecting uh, intellectual property like uh, product designs, 
So there's a number of um, different types of data that people are looking to protect, basically what they call high business impact data. Okay. So let's, before we jump into, let's take the direction of define the need before we jump into technology. You know, we don't, we don't want to have technology looking for a, looking for a problem to solve. We have problems that exist. What, what are they? And what are some of the common reasons that people consider a data loss or data leakage or whatever we're calling it now, prevention, a DLP product or that type of technology? There, there's a couple drivers. Uh, the first is there, there's, and it's not, um, uh, it's not onerous or, or not everybody's affected by it, but there are many industries that have regulations that are pretty prescriptive in terms of protecting uh, certain private information. Certainly the credit card companies uh, compel anybody that, that uh, processes credit card transactions to protect those numbers. But there's a lot of people that uh, think seriously about data loss prevention because uh, they want to keep their names out of the uh, off the front page of the Wall Street Journal. They need to protect right. their brand equity, uh, and they just don't want to be uh, caught in that position of having to disclose that data got out of their organization that they didn't want. Sure. What, what when you're thinking about sensitive data, you, you've you've at a very high level mentioned some examples of that. But what what makes data sensitive? What what is it that we have to think about when we start to deal with with data and and, and what is DLP in relation to yeah, you know sensitive data that's one of the things that organizations uh have to uh get a handle on what constitutes their sensitive data their high impact data the type of data that uh could cause a um, financial loss if it were to be disclosed, uh, either because uh, a product design gets leaked out to a competitor from an ex-employee, uh, it could be a fine uh, or the inability to process credit card transactions that get slapped on them by one of the credit card issuers. Uh, it could be not passing a PCI audit, uh, not pa- a bank not passing a GLBA audit. There's a number of, of things that, that could drive um, the impact of lost data. Is it just banking data that we're talking about, or is there other types of data that you can also protect against the leakage or the loss of? Well, certainly banking data because uh, typically that involves a lot of account, credit card. The type of information right. where, where uh, an identity, when you have name, address, social security number, other identifying things that constitute what we call personally identifiable information where someone's identity can be stolen. But it also involves um, intellectual property. Uh, It involves uh, protected health information that's described under the HIPAA laws. So it really runs the gamut in terms of what constitutes uh, confidential information. But again, it's up to each individual organization to decide what is the high business impact data that matters to them. Yeah, and I'm always falling back on credit cards because that's the the thing that I've dealt with in the past myself. But it, I guess pretty soon, as soon as you're mm-hmm. talking about a customer's name, address, telephone number, all of that is effectively sensitive data, right? Oh, absolutely. And and I think there's virtually all of the states now was initially led by the uh, state of California when we enacted SB 1386 
that uh, uh, prescribes uh, protecting private data like that and tells organizations that uh, they have to uh, disclose when there's been a potential data leak. And then there's a number of people I know that probably a lot of listeners have at one point in the last few years received a letter from one of the companies that they've done business with explaining that their account data may have been somehow compromised and they're offered a year's worth of credit monitoring service. I know I've received a couple of those. Yeah, I have as well. It's it's a, a bit of a disconcerting letter to get, isn't it? Well, it's chilling, right? Because it's a may, it's not a, you, there's nothing for you to do per se. Uh, it, but it, you're right, it, it, in terms of brand damage, I mean, what a nasty thing to receive. You can't help but think badly of whatever company sent you that letter. That's true. It is a little chilling, but, you know, a lot of companies I've found are just very conservative when it comes to that. In fact, one of the, the cases where I received a letter was apparently one of my uh, credit card companies explained that a tape that had like a, a system backup tape that had account information on it was somehow inadvertently lost. And, you know, based on the law that uh, they're operating under in that state, they were compelled to inform me of that. Was it was it likely that my account information was compromised? Probably not. Yeah, I mean, reporting and all the laws around reporting, what, there's new Massachusetts law now. There's a whole, and there, there, there's a lot more coming. Um, a lot of requirements on business these days when it comes to how to communicate and when to communicate and why to communicate about even, like you say, just potential losses of data. That's right. But there's certainly there's um, uh, a lot of other reasons that people are interested in protecting data that's not even covered by these disclosure laws, particularly intellectual property. People are, have become very sensitive to uh, concerns about losing product designs, uh, oil companies that have seismic data that's considered intellectual property, tech companies that have right. source code that need to be protected. And with the mobility of workers in the in the, the U.S. these days, uh, there's a big concern that uh, employees are taking data with them when they leave their jobs, uh, and in particular when they go to competitors. So they're, they're thinking about that sort of thing as well. Yeah, I mean, if I'm a, I don't know, take one of your examples, if I'm a software engineer, and I am not happy, uh, or even if I get fired, for example, and I'm, you know, have a couple of seconds to stick in a USB key or burn a CD or a DVD with a bunch of source code on it, it's not that hard for me to walk out the door, I guess, is it really, with with that information? It isn't, but let me tell you what uh, uh, some of the some of the tricks that uh, DLP can do these days. Our our product working with. Um, Another semantic product that we call Workflow can set in in uh, set a series of uh, actions in place when that engineer puts a USB drive in to his computer and then starts to download uh, source code. Our software yeah. that's running on uh, his PC is identifying that he's downloading source code. The data loss prevention applications knows that you know that's a, a, a prohibited application. So what happens is the DLP application talks to another application that can uh, lock the user's ability to uh, leave the building, deactivates his card key, in other words, until he goes to talk to the security department. Security department can see that uh, he's done something that is probably not uh, within uh, reason and can stop the data loss before it occurs. That, that's a, a real application that works today. 
So taking DLP and using it to trigger some other activity outside of a DLP type of product is what you're saying. Exactly. But what I find interesting about this is the idea that the guy can still copy stuff onto his USB key. Hey, maybe he's doing it for a legitimate reason. It's not stopping it from doing that. It's just making sure everybody knows that there's a notification process and maybe he has to step through an extra hoop to say, well, here's the you know request from my boss to make a copy of this and take it out of here so that he can he can still proceed. I just I find that fascinating, this idea that, you know, I'm coming from the group policy. I can certainly stop anybody from putting anything on a USB key. But to but let there him might be do legitimate it, legitimate reasons but, to do it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, let the legitimate reasons still function. You know, and that's the way most people use data loss prevention. Certainly, we talk about DLP's capability to stop uh, the ability to, uh, of data to leave an organization. But uh, the reality is, many, many customers choose to use the product in a monitor mode so that they simply understand uh, where the information is going. Uh, who's sending it out, how the information is being used, and they don't want to use DLP to stand in the way of user productivity or, or um, you know, to get uh, users um, uh, confused or uh, unable to do their jobs. Well, and you, and you don't want to run in a sort of police state mode either where everything's constantly locked and you have to ask permission to do what would be a fairly normal thing in a home-based machine. That's right. In typical typical fashion, they, they will monitor how data is flowing here and there, but only when it comes to super, super sensitive information, like maybe a list of credit cards or a list of employee names and account numbers, will they actually have the system put blocking in place. But can you, you can't stop it before it starts. Can you stop it while it's happening? Oh, absolutely. Let's say, um, here's a typical example. Uh, 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 an employee uh, downloads a list of name and addresses and attaches it to a uh, Gmail uh, email that they're sending to their home home account. And when the user hits the send button, our software kicks in, actually reads the contents of that attachment and says, this falls outside of acceptable use policy and will actually keep the email from leaving the, the the company's network, mm-hmm. but I do I do like the fact that he's done the crime, so to speak. He has attempted to send an email, and if the DLP software hadn't blocked it, it would have sent. So right. there's clear evidence of uh, of malfeasance here. He's done something that's outside of what you know his employee contract said he was allowed to do. Right. Mm-hmm. There's you, you can't block. You know, I, I think it's probably worth pointing out to everybody that if, if somebody is bound and determined to steal something, right, from internally, that there's always a way to do that. Take a picture of a screen, get out a pencil or a pen and paper, and write something down. Have a photographic memory and remember what you saw. I mean, there's always a way to do it. But the idea here is to make it more difficult. But isn't isn't another point of DLP also just to prevent the accidental and inadvertent misuse of data? Yeah, Greg, that's a good point that you bring up. Um, In fact, typical studies tell us that around 90% of the data loss incidents occur because well-intentioned employees are simply trying to do their job. Uh, You know, they want to send something home to work on it at home in the evening they want to put something on a USB drive. The USB drive gets lost. Those are the typical sort of incidents 
that the data loss prevention products are really designed to solve. Educate employees on acceptable use policies and actually, you know, what we call, what we call stopping stupid. Right. Yeah. You accidentally mail the entire customer list to somebody you shouldn't have. Exactly. Or an HR manager who puts the, um, employee roster on an unprotected file share. That's right. the t- the t- sort of typical thing that we're trying to prevent. So we've talked about a lot of different, I mean, sort of alluded to even just indirectly, a lot of different places that data can show up. Um, maybe we step back and think about DLP technology or can you explain what makes DLP technology a DLP? Uh, sure. It's actually the core of data loss prevention is uh, what we call content awareness is that we're not just looking at uh, what a file type or or the name of a file. Uh, we actually, as data is being sent over the network or being copied to a USB drive or being put on an email as an attachment, at the point at which that action takes place, some component of the DLP product actually opens up that file and reads the content and then makes a determination whether or not the contents of that file match a particular DLP policy. And a policy is defined in the system as, you know, I want to make sure, I want you to find credit card data, I want you to find, you know, resumes, I want you to find uh, product designs, CAD CAD drawings, uh, certain press releases. So what, what we're doing is what we call deep content inspection. So every file gets opened up, every file gets looked at, and a determination is made whether or not that file constitutes confidential information. And that really is the core of how DLP works. So I might have stuff that's sitting, um, we've talked about emailing things, for example, or putting things on a file share. You know, I mean, organizations that I've worked with and worked in, there's file servers out there that contain just terabytes and terabytes of information. I mean, it, it's a huge amount of information. It might sit there for quite a while. Oh, for years. And people are really reluctant to get rid of it. So that's one of the values of data loss prevention as well, is going out and being able to scan these terabytes and terabytes of file system data and identify uh, data that really shouldn't be there. And once that's done, measures can be taken to either get rid of it or move it to protected file shares. We even have products that let people identify who owns the file, not through the metadata within the file itself, by who's, but, but by who's been accessing and who's been using the data. That We can attribute ownership of a, of a file out on a file share by usage. So uh, when we think about uh, whether it's, you know, Semantics product or, you know, one of the other, you know, what I would maybe think of as the major vendors out there, um, data, you know, you hear people throwing around terms like um, data at rest and data in motion and data in use. Can you explain what those things are and and kind of how those problems are solved in the marketplace? Sure. Those are the common terms that people have started to use that help describe the types of data that DLP can protect. So let me take them one by one. First is uh, data in use. 
And by that we mean uh, data that's actually files that are actually going somewhere. They're going. Um, uh, I think um, data in motion is files that are going somewhere. They're going uh, on an email message. They're being copied to a DVD or a, or a USB drive. Uh, they're being sent from one person to another or being copied from one device to another. That's data in motion. Uh, data okay. at rest uh, is uh, files that are stored on file systems that, uh, like, like we just talked about a minute ago, um, files that are being um, stored and may or may, or may not be uh, accessing actively. Data in use is files that are actually being manipulated by users. So I have a spreadsheet of confidential information that's open or a confidential, let's say, Microsoft Word document that I'm using, and then I want to do something with it. I want to, uh, you know, maybe store it somewhere, uh, copy it to a USB right. drive, attach it to an email. So data in use, information that's being used, data in motion, data that's flowing out over the network, and data at rest, which is stored data. Now, if data is at rest, I mean, as soon as somebody tries to copy it or anything, it's effectively data in use, right? You've got locks in place. That, uh, you know, it looks the same as somebody's editing the file. That's true. And, you know, data loss prevention isn't designed to prevent people from using data. Certainly, right. uh, if I'm in an organization, I can uh, open up a confidential file and manipulate it. It's Data loss prevention comes into play when I want to do something with it that may that may be an, an activity that co could cause it to leak out of the organization. Right. So also data at rest, the key use for data loss prevention is actually to find all of that. Amongst all the terabytes and terabytes of stored data, you want to find all of your confidential data at rest. So if I'm scanning my file servers, that's a data at rest search, I guess you would exactly. say. Exactly. Right. If if I go out to a file server as a user and open a file, then that's a data. Or if I copy the file to my workstation, that's data in motion. Exactly. If I open the file and maybe start copying part of the Word document out and pasting it into another Word document, that's data in use? That's right. Okay. So when people implement these systems, I mean, do they really work very well? What and how do they do it? It's uh, it sounds to me like you have the potential here to, um, you know, I think about things in terms of like business logic or um, business processes, right? The people need to be able to get their jobs done. Um, but if we're going to be doing preventing data loss, how do we do that in a way that doesn't kill, as you mentioned, you alluded to earlier, doesn't sort of kill my ability to do my job? Right. And it, it can seem like a, a potentially a daunting process, but what's nice about data loss prevention as a program is that you can take it in phases. And typically, here's how it goes. People get the data loss prevention product and they start assessing their areas of risk. Okay. They start monitoring. They start monitoring email. Uh, they might start monitoring um, people's use of data at the endpoint. And they start understanding which departments are are at greatest risk, and then they embark on employee education. So nothing more than user awareness through educational programs is is developed because now they have visibility. So DLP initially helps you gain visibility. 
The next step really is to start implementing user notifications. That is, you don't really block or you don't stop people from doing things. But when people send an email with confidential data in it, the data loss prevention product can kick back a message from the information security department telling people that, well, you may want to reconsider whether or not you should be doing this. That step alone leads to a massive reduction in risk. In fact, we see customers that implement end-user notifications, and they see what you know what we 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 say about eighty to ninety percent risk reduction in a matter of weeks. And what we mean by that is, if they had a thousand potential data loss incidents before they implemented user notification, that's gone down to maybe a hundred. Uh-huh. Once users understand what the policies are, they start rethinking how they're using confidential data. And then finally, if, if for, for really, really critical data, uh, some customers use data loss prevention to actually, as we, we talked about earlier, implement blocking. So you take it in phases. Uh, it's not hard to implement, but it's a, it is a security program that is enabled through this technology. One of the things I'm picking up on here is there's an opportunity to use the DLP technology to educate people. I think about security and IT and how so often we have to say no, right? Or, you know, that's wrong, this is wrong. Sounds like maybe there's the opportunity to use the technology not to tell them necessarily so much you're doing something wrong, but maybe to tell them here's what you need to do that would be right. Is that something we can do? Exactly. And that's how most customers use data loss prevention. So here's an example. Uh, someone sends their tax return to their wife over the company's email system. Well, data loss prevention will kick back a nice uh, email to that employee telling them that you might want to reconsider sending your social security number in the clear over an email system, you know, protect sensitive data. That's just uh, an education process that happens when an event like that occurs. And that really is the key, when you think about it, the key to reducing risk, because like I said earlier, most data loss issues are caused by well-intentioned people just trying to do their job. And just not realizing that they've done something hazardous like that, like sending a, a SIN number over or social security number, sorry, I'm Canadian, uh, over the uh, a clear text email. Exactly. You don't have to right. apologize for being Canadian, Richard. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no we apology. Have slightly necessary. different words for these things. But, well, DLP uh, recognizes right. those those numbers as well. And, and what I think is interesting here is the the kind of mistakes you would make, like uh, uh, leaving uh, an Excel spreadsheet where the second sheet has a bunch of uh, a customer information, and you didn't even look at that. You're working on the first sheet. Uh, right. In theory, DLP is going to pick that up when you email that. That's right. Or the email thread that, like, two miles down has a whole bunch of sensitive information that you wouldn't want to forward out, but because you don't scroll down to read it all, you might be sending it out to somebody outside the company or that you work at, and that might be a problem. Yeah, what a great example, because you have this email going back and forth internally, back and forth internally, and it's got sensitive right. data in it way down in the stack, and then somebody forwards it out of the company. Yeah, or, or you know, yeah, use the Outlook autocomplete. I had this happen to me not too long ago. You start typing somebody's email address, Outlook autocompletes it for you, you hit enter, and it's kind of like we said, you know, a few shows ago with Clippy, you know, it, it tries to figure out what you want to do, but it's really, you know, if you don't pay close attention, it may not really be doing what you want to do. Um, 
you know, sending something outside instead of internally because you happen to just not pay close enough attention because you were in a hurry. Again, I guess that's just trying to get your job done and just an inadvertent mistake that a person makes. There you go. Perfect example. Yeah, and you know that when writing an email, the person you the second most likely person for you to send that email to besides the person you intended to is the one you didn't want to send it to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think. Yes. So uh, what I love about this is this idea that the meal goes out and you may or may not realize it. And then sometime later you get notified. Like how, how does that look, Robert, when, when an email gets intercepted by the DLP software on the back end? Is it just send a mail back saying you may not want to send this? I, I guess part of this is deciding do I still send it but send, send back a warning or do I stop it from sending and say, you know, you shouldn't be doing it this way? You can have it work both ways. Uh, you can tell people after the, you know, don't stand in the way of letting them send email, but let them know that the email that they sent may have confidential data in it. And that, ha- that, um, notification happens immediately. Um, or you could actually block the email and then, uh, have the user make a determination, uh, whether or not they really want that email to go out. There's a number of different levels of security that you can implement when it comes to blocking and notification. Okay, so what if I need to send sensitive data to somebody, maybe like some other company that's a partner of mine, and it is sensitive data, and I need to send it to them, and they have to receive it via email? I mean, email, just plain old email, is just not a very good thing. So, you know, like sometimes companies will say, well, you have to zip it with a version of a zip program that'll do 256-bit, you know, encryption, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure you do that and send it out. But in the uh, I'm in a hurry trying to get my job done thing, uh, you know, maybe I just sort of skip over that part, you know, or forget to do it. I attach the, the document. Or maybe like um, Richard said, it's an Excel spreadsheet, and the second – the second uh, sheet in the in the workbook or what have you is maybe does have sensitive data, but I didn't realize it. Is there something that DLP can do to get the data to the people that need to get it outside the company, but still protect it? Well, certainly you you'd want to implement um, le- levels of encryption uh, through your email system just as a best practice. But but the DLP when I talked earlier about policy defining. Uh, what is sensitive data? Also, part of policy is where's the data coming from? Who's it going to? And you can always, by policy, make exceptions that say, if this file is going to one of these trusted partners, let it go through. Or if this data gotcha. is being copied to a USB by this group of trusted individuals, let them do it. So you can create those exceptions within the DLP policies as well. Is it possible to be explicit, for example, to actually mark an email as this cannot be sent outside of the company? Well, that capability is um, certainly DLP can inspect the email and make a determination whether or not that that um, email should or should not be sent outside of the company, and it can be uh, tagged. Uh, on the email via what what we commonly call X headers, and then right. some other device downstream of the mail um, server can read that X header and do something with it, like encrypt it or put it in a queue for inspection by a security officer. So DLP can what the the value that DLP adds is again we open up the email, we read the body, 
we read the uh, contents of the attachment, and then we can stamp it with some sort of uh, confidential flag or uh, whatever the user determines is appropriate based on that content. Okay, so then my message workflow could hit uh, uh, after it being stamped. You could stamp it, for example, that says, you know, uh, encrypt. And then maybe I would have some other third-party application that could encrypt the email before it goes out on the Internet. Yeah, that's a pretty common usage, particularly with healthcare, is they do selective encryption based on the content. They rely on DLP to determine what the content is, and then they rely on an encryption server um, after the DLP product has made a determination that the email needs to be encrypted. So, yeah, that's a common application. So, ultimately, DLP is look at look into the guts of some kind of, of any document or content or file or whatever it is, however you define the 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 object look inside of the content analyze it make some kind of evaluation which you can then use to what would the term be to uh, to remediate the problem if there's a problem well yeah i think i think you got it um uh, pretty much uh, correct there we netted out to calling it just detection and response we look at what's inside the document or the email, and then we do something about it, okay? We can look at a lot of different documents and interpret a lot of different content, and we can do many different responses. So detection and response, and that really is the core of what DLP is about. Maybe before we finish up, just as a maybe a last thought, can you give, obviously you can't state names, but can you give a couple examples of where you know, a DLP technology being brought into some kind of organization new has, you know, made a tangible, like, difference? Oh, certainly. I think in, in almost every um, every installation, DLP uh, makes a, a, a big difference. Um, a good example is an insurance company that was uh, very concerned uh, about the amount of uh, personally identifiable information and account information was flowing out through the email system. Um, a lot of email correspondence with customers. And what they did is, again, they did this uh, uh, notification implementation where uh, the people that were sending email uh, when they were uh, enclosing or attaching confidential data to that e email, they were informed that they shouldn't be doing that. Um, two weeks after that notification system was put in place, the number of potential data loss incidents decreased 90%, um, like 88% within a couple of weeks. So a huge impact. Um, another example is uh, an equipment manufacturer uh, was concerned about design documents uh, flowing out of the or their organization through personal Gmail accounts. And, and they knew this because once they had put the data loss prevention product in place in a monitoring mode was, uh, was, was showing them that there were a lot of CAD documents that were going out over the email system to Yahoo and Gmail accounts. So in that instance, they implemented blocking and they saw a uh, close to 95% reduction in the number of design documents that were leaving the organization. What's the one thing that people need to know if they're thinking about doing, 
you know, a data loss prevention or similar kind of uh, project or initiative, what what's the mistake that they need to make sure they don't make ahead of time? I think they need to make sure that they that the initiative for data loss prevention in, involves the business units that are going to be affected by it. It's not simply something that is brought in by the information security uh, team, but there's a uh, relatively broader task force that brings the business units into the formulation of policy and essentially the definition of the type of information that they want to protect and um, get input from those business units on the impact of potential data loss. Robert Hamilton, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. (laughs) 